0: hi nancy hello shane how are you fine how are you good good um so today i want to talk about sea shanties i don't know what that is oh my gosh i can't all right so we're gonna um we're just gonna bring in our our co-producer janessa hi janessa
1: Hi guys
0: can you explain to nancy what a sea shanty is
1: uh, well, so a sea shanty is something sung by presumably sailors and they would do it while they worked. They would sing and like swab the deck, whatever sailors did.
0: Oh, I wish I was a bosun aboard a man of war hey! Sam's gone away aboard a man of war Yes, I wish I was a bosun aboard a man of war hey! Sam's gone away aboard a man of war
2: Pretty work, brave boys, pretty work, I say Sam's gone
0: away aboard a man of war Oh, okay. I mean, I can imagine that. Yeah, they, they like have a cadence, you know, like dun da, dun da, dun da, dun da, dun 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 or something like that. They're like So wait, you said before you started this recording, um, you said that they were popular now because of COVID. Why? Like people are making them up or like seeing well, them? Yeah, so what happened was that it got popular on TikTok. And basically, oh. like some I forget his name, but some I believe it was an Irish guy like recorded the sea shanty on TikTok. It's a it's a known sea shanty, I guess in the in the world of the I've Wellerman. Never... The Wellerman, yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. I've never said sea shanty this much in my life. And then people <laughs> just started on TikTok. You can basically duet people, so you can talk over videos, and people just started duplicating this and duplicating this and duplicating this, and it blew up and. Sea shanties were a thing for a while. I'm actually surprised we didn't do anything at AGU or you didn't come across them on social media. I mean, maybe. I, I don't know. <laughs> it's really it fun because
1: you get this like rich baritone if you do this like chorus of people and then you can get some spring, uh, some strings in there too. And the, the TikTok star was um, Scottish uh, star Nathan Evans. And he had more than 8 million views last time. All
0: Oops. right, well, I guess I have to go do some TikTok research now. <laughs> Thanks. You're welcome, Nancy. This is what we're here for. Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hamlin. And I'm Nancy Bompey. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. Nancy, we're not just trying to kind of bring you up on the current TikTok trend, though that would be, that would just be a fun episode <laughs> to try and describe <laughs> some of these things. Uh, but yeah, there's, we're going to be talking about, well, maybe not necessarily sea shanties, but I'll let Janessa, who uh, brought us this episode, kind of get into the actual description.
1: Right. So today we're going to hear a tale about the high seas, Which is why i want to start with sea shanties so it's a story about a historian who actually dug through old ship logs for scientific data Uh, these logs were written down by sailors as far back as the 16th century while they were crossing the seas and um so it turns out that these navigational logs that they just needed so they wouldn't get lost are actually a treasure trove of scientific data particularly on the Earth's magnetic field, which is kind of surprising. So researchers today, you know, we study our magnetic field to understand how it protects us from, like, say, solar radiation from the sun. But we don't have many measurements of our magnetic field before satellites and other types of technology. And so these maritime records are really rare and really interesting and took so, so much digging by this historian. So I wanna tell you more about his journey getting into these maritime records, understanding what they mean about the Earth, and then publishing a study that's now been cited thousands of times um, reconstructing the Earth's magnetic field.
2: My name is Art Jonkers, I'm a Dutch academic currently working at the Institute for Geophysics at the University of Münster in Germany.
1: Before we get started, what exactly is the Earth's magnetic field and what generates it?
2: So the Earth's magnetic field is a force field. Um, You can imagine field lines that exit at the South Pole and going all the way around the Earth, outside the Earth's atmosphere, into space, curving back in towards the north pole and there entering again so this is a, a field that affects uh, instruments at the surface for example your compass uh, your compass will try to align itself with the local magnetic field lines just like iron filings on a piece of paper will try to follow the field lines uh, of a bar magnet that you hold underneath but the earth's field is not a bar magnet of planetary proportions. Because it's far too hot inside the Earth, then a bar magnet would melt almost instantly. So instead, it is a complicated process of the fluid motions and the Earth's rotation that generate a so-called liquid or fluid dynamo process.
1: So why does the magnetic field change?
2: Ah, because it is generated not by a fixed bar magnet, but by a convecting, spinning liquid. Uh, It's just like airflow in the atmosphere, only down, deep, deep down uh, at the top of the outer core. Uh, And fluid flow affects the magnetic field, and the magnetic field affects the fluid flow. So it gets to be very complicated, and it changes over time.
1: (laughs) How did you get into this work?
2: I'm fascinated with the notion of discovering uh, like, a hidden layer of information, my focus in history was on maritime history and the history of science and that's where you have many scattered sources of people making natural observations all over the world but this tends to be very patchy so i knew i had to have a global way into understanding whatever i was going to be looking at and in my uh, in my case i was interested in the geomagnetic field so I needed a geophysically sound reconstruction of the the field at that time. So I got in contact with the people at Leeds who were uh, the geophysicists there were trying to do the exact same thing, trying to reconstruct the field in the past.
1: As part of his historical research, Art was looking into what scientists back in history thought the Earth's magnetic field looked like. In order to compare their records with what was actually happening on Earth, He thought scientists must have some reference somewhere, right? Some map of what the Earth's magnetic field used to look like. But it turns out they don't, at least not over the last couple hundreds of years. There's actually a gap in our understanding of how Earth's magnetic field has changed. We know what it looked like throughout millions of years of Earth's history because you can actually look at records in old rocks and look at how their minerals recorded the magnetic field. But you can't do that for more recent rocks, and so we have this gap in our record. Art was frustrated by this, understandably, and he decided to make his own blueprint of what the Earth's magnetic field must have looked like over the last 400 years. He looked through maritime records, and found measurements called magnetic declination to help him. So you used measurements of magnetic declination to reconstruct the magnetic field. What is that?
2: So I tend to call it the third coordinate because you often find descriptions of uh, uh, ports and other land sightings specifying latitude, so-and-so, magnetic declination, such-and-such. Or if if uh, longitude is measured, uh, then you f- often find triplets. So, latitude, longitude, magnetic declination. So, magnetic declination is simply the difference between true north, the top of your map, and the direction where your compass needle is pointing.
1: What did you, what did you have to do to, to get the data, to get these historical measurements?
2: The the large majority of uh, the observations comes from East India voyages, and that's uh, based on the colonial enterprises uh, of large, what we would now call multinationals with their own armies. And uh, they were certainly not uh, uh, very nice uh, in the colonies uh, to the people they were trying to exploit there.
1: Art goes and finds these old documents that are actually still around in libraries in Europe. And he looks over logs from the 16th to 20th centuries. This was a time when countries in Western Europe sent ships all over the world. Along the way, mariners took meticulous navigation logs of magnetic declination. Art set off on a years-long quest to unearth these measurements.
2: I spent uh, three years in London, Paris, Copenhagen, Seville, uh, and that's where the historian uh, skills also come into play, because you need to know your study objects, You you need to know how these maritime organizations were structured, so where did the documents end up? The individual archives were great places, you get to go to places where the general public is not uh, allowed in, so for the the best place for, for me, uh, I liked the most was uh, the Bodleian Library at the University of Oxford, where before you get access, you have to solemnly swear not to kindle any flame on the premises. This is great, and then you, you, <laughs> and then you eventually get access, and uh, there's these 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 massive rows of uh, wood carved. Uh, Uh, book uh, uh, stands and and paintings on the wall and it's like something out of uh, Lord of the Rings you half expect Gandalf to sit in the corner and studying some ancient tome
1: When you're handling these documents do you have to wear gloves? Like is it just very everyone has to be I don't know. You almost have to be silent so that you just don't doesn't disintegrate in front of you, or <laughs> something.
2: <laughs> well, it's not quite that bad. Okay, it's actually pretty sturdy. Uh, it had to survive an ocean voyage or two, uh, so uh, it's it's it stood the test of time uh, much better than uh, many uh, modern uh, paper documents would. But uh yeah, the the navigational logbook. Uh, it's, it's great to handle the, these manuscripts. Uh, uh, you don't have to wear gloves most of the time. Mm. And, uh, but you do get very dirty fingers after a while. Mm. And there's also sand in the binding because they threw it over the page to let the ink dry. Really? And some of that sand then drops out when you open the manuscript. Uh, so if you touch that, then you may be the first person to touch that sand since the author touched it 300 years ago. That's, of mm. course, wonderful.
1: Something that I find really cool about these logs is that people were sailing all over the world during that time, from Europe, across the Atlantic, but also down into the Indian Ocean and into the Tasman Sea, and even all the way to the Pacific. Art worked with geophysicist Andrew Jackson, Anne Murray, and Matthew Walker at the University of Leeds to turn these measurements into something scientifically rigorous. They had to triangulate where the ships actually were in space and account for the errors that navigators made along the way. At times, the work was a slog.
2: The hardest part of it was uh, the the psychological toll, because you basically, you have to be sufficiently obsessive-compulsive to keep going and focused, but not so compulsive that you go completely crazy. And you have to work in the dark for about three years, because we had to complete the entire archive, archival phase before we could get onto the post-processing of correcting all these uh, uh, voyages you know, spatially and then do all the calculations. So you never know while you're working a- away in the archives whether what you've got is good enough to be able to succeed.
1: Wow. How did you keep going?
2: Well, uh, so, so I like to walk a lot. So my free days, I, I walked... Uh, I, I, uh, Across the, well, I got to know Paris very well, and London is my all-time favorite city. And uh, Yeah, and reading cartoons sometimes to get your mind off things.
1: Flipping through these logbooks really transported art back in time onto the high seas, and I'm kind of jealous of him. So I asked if he could send us a snippet from an old logbook he sent us this passage from a very unfortunate uh expedition in 1769 and it's going to be read by the wonderful alex howe
2: very strong gales with excessive hard squalls and rain in a very large sea with a dark dismal looking sky at noon finding we had not the least prospect of a shift of wind, consulted with my officers we unanimously agreed to bear away, think we would be running too great a risk with the ship and ourselves to beat any longer in the sickly condition we are in, having 28 people incapable of doing any duty, and hardly a man on board that is not effective with a scurvy in some shape or other. We looked upon St. Augustine's Bay on the island of Madagascar to be the best port, knowing that there were plenty of good provisions to be had, which was the chief thing we wanted. in stormy weather the writing can get really scribbly so you know that, that you have a direct connection with these people as they go through this voyage and occasionally there's these spectacular events like lightning strikes in one instance uh, the ship dover paralyzing and blinding part of the crew and destroying the rigging so that's of course spectacular and the best thing I found uh, the unforeseen little nuggets you discovered were the comet sightings. So occasionally a ship will be at sea and uh, describe a comet um, that is not being seen anywhere else on Earth because they're so far away from the the European continent. So there's one comet in 1747 in the South Indian Ocean uh, that turned out to be the return leg uh, leaving the solar system after it had been witnessed at the end of 1746 in Europe on its approach to the sun. And uh, so I contacted uh, Brian Marsden at the Smithsonian uh, who collects these comet uh, observations in the past. And with that second observation, uh, we were able to pin down the comet orbit much more precisely than before. And it's these little nuggets that make it bearable that then you suddenly discover something totally out of the frame. But of
1: course, art saw not only the wonders of history, but its evils too.
2: And then there's numerous accidents being described, uh, the occasional man overboard, the occasional suicide. And similarly, uh, there were the slavery logs, which are navigationally very important because they cross the Atlantic in an east-west direction rather than in a north-south direction. So they they, they cover a different part of the, of the Atlantic in a different way, uh, in, a, in a different type of navigation, uh, which is called latitude sailing. But uh, yeah, this was... Uh, acquired a great cost. And uh, uh, the, the slavery logs themselves are deeply unpleasant reading.
1: Art and his colleagues used data from many sources. It's hard to know what overall percentage came from slavery ships. Art thinks 6% of the data he looked at came from ships carrying enslaved people. In the past, Western researchers have taken away people's agency, consent, or land in the name of science. Well, these data weren't originally collected on ships for science, it's a reminder you don't have to look hard or far to find artifacts of racism in our data. And this is a problem that continues today in our algorithms.
2: Yeah, you realize that the, the past really is a foreign country and people have completely different attitudes to things that uh, we now find uh, totally unacceptable. And, and um, yeah, there's limits to how much you can, Uh, get into the mindset of somebody of three, four hundred years ago.
1: In the end, Art and his collaborators digitized more than 2,000 logbooks. This work was done back in the 90s. So even though Art wrote computer programs to help with the work, it was still a painstaking process. Art thinks that perhaps if this was done today, You could use artificial intelligence to scan through the logbooks, but it would be challenging. A lot of these records are in old handwriting in Dutch, French, Spanish, Danish, and Portuguese, all languages that Art can read, by the way. I asked Art, how many of these measurements did the team collect?
2: It was 2,400 voyages uh, and 177,000 observations of magnetic declination, inclination, and Uh, later also intensities.
1: So in this study, you took these measurements and then you plugged them in into a mathematical model. Um, What did you find?
2: So what we got out is uh, what we call GeoFM1, the global field map of the first ever reconstruction of the geomagnetic field at the top of the core spanning four full centuries from 1590 to 1990 and since then it has been extended with satellite uh, observations to up right up to the present day and from this field map of of the magnetic field uh, you can reconstruct the fluid flow of the molten iron at the top of the core
1: i was curious about this global field map that all of this work went into creating so i looked up the paper it's published in 2000 in the royal society and I'm scrolling through the citations. You can see that this paper has been used in studies of the aurora, the fluid flow of Earth's core, space weather. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of applications in here.
2: The the map also... Uh captures field features geomagnetic field features that provide constraints for people that are trying to model uh, the geodynamo so just putting physics into a computer and then trying to get a realistic earth-like field and this is very difficult because these are very complex systems so everyone with appropriate software can now generate their own field reconstructions for their own studies and separately the data set uh, has been deposited with uh, the World Data Center through the British Geological Survey at Edinburgh. And uh, hopefully they can also provide uh, food for thought for future generations of investigators of the Earth's magnetic field.
1: How did this project, or did this project change the trajectory of your career?
2: I, it did, because uh, I sort of moved out of history after this. I, uh, Following the PhD, I did a postdoc in geophysics at Leeds Uh, Leeds University just to finish up the work and also to rework parts of the thesis into uh, a more accessible book published by Johns Hopkins University Press in 2003 called Earth's Magnetism in the Age of Sail. And this covers both the maritime part of it and also a bit more of the history of science at the time about the ideas that people came up with to explain the Earth's magnetic field.
1: After that, he jumped from fellowship to fellowship, and met his wife, aw, who is a seismologist. When she got appointed at the University of Munster, he went with her.
2: And so currently I'm back in geophysics, working with my wife on constraining the mineralogy in the lowmost mantle. I'm now applying uh, statistics to seismology rather than geomagnetism. But regardless of the discipline, it, it always boils down to separating signal from noise and, and trying to reveal that, that hidden layer of information. And that's that's the, the thrill for me. This is my prime motivation for staying in science, whatever the discipline.
0: It's so fascinating to me that we're able to learn so much about, I guess in this case, uh, magnetic fields from the ship logs. What, What else is out there? Like, what else could we learn from other ship logs?
1: Oh, so, so many things. I mean, these logs include weather information all over the world's oceans. They also include sightings of whales, which would be cool. And you could even look at sea ice patterns. Um, to see how they've changed over time. So, I mean, there's just a lot we can do with essentially measurements that have just been in the dark for centuries.
0: That's very cool. I'm, I'm looking forward to potentially learning about new things in the future. All right. Well, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks to Janessa for bringing us this story. And of course, thanks to Art for sharing his work with us. And an extra thanks to Alex Howe for reading from a quote from a logbook. This podcast was produced by Janessa, and thanks to our sound engineer, Kayla Suri. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Please rate and review us um, on iTunes. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next time.